Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. Welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sharika Crawford. Today, I'm here with Dr. Natasha Lightfoot. She's an associate professor of history at Columbia University. We're here to discuss her book, Troubling Freedom, Antigua in the Aftermath of British Emancipation, which was published by Duke University Press in 2015. Welcome to New Books Network and Caribbean Studies, Natasha. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm really just honored to, you know, be even asked to talk about the book. Um, so I really want to thank you, um, you know, just for thinking of me for, for this opportunity. So very much appreciate it, Sherika. Oh, thank you. I'm I'm super excited to discuss with you um, your work. It's it's a really compelling uh, history of the experiences of freed people in Antigua and Barbuda um, in the decades before and after British eman- emancipation. I thought we might begin our interview actually by having you discuss a little bit about your your background. Um, if you want to share kind of your intellectual origins, if you will. Um. So I um, started out uh, undergrad as a history major at Yale, and I really just liked the courses. I took a lot of courses in American history, African-American history, um, and then I was doing a senior thesis that um, was under the uh, guidance of Glenda Gilmore, who suggested that I should apply to graduate school because she thought that I was really good at historical research. And I, you know, I found it just kind of like striking that <laughs> I hadn't really figured out what I was going to do with my life. But, um, you know, she sort of put the bug in my ear to um, encourage me to pursue this professionally. So I credit her for seeing the historian in me that I hadn't quite seen in myself even as a history major, as an undergraduate. So I did apply. I ended up at NYU, and NYU was a great time to be there um, because there were just a really wonderful collection of scholars. I ended up applying to the African Diaspora Program um, and in the history department. So I was in history in the major field of the diaspora, and within that, you could choose sort of the area of focus that was going to be, you know, the kind of the, the, the kind of site in the diaspora that you wanted to concentrate on the most. And I had a hazy idea that maybe I would continue in African American history. Um, but I ended up um, 
in the midst of my second year during my comprehensive exam preparation, my father passed away. And so I had to actually go to Antigua and spend um, several weeks helping to sort of sort his affairs out and, you know, connect with my family. And interestingly enough, we were very much in the midst of exam prep. That was the period where we were really spending a lot of time, myself and others in my cohort, thinking through what is the diaspora? How does it come to be? We spent so much time um, talking about, in particular, how, you know, the transatlantic slave trade was a really kind of pivotal moment in the history of the dispersal of Africans throughout the world. Um, And that, you know, many of our courses spent a lot of time looking at the history of slavery. And so I was always especially animated by the question of freedom. I kept asking, well, when are we going to get free? We have spent a lot of time reading about Black people in bondage, what is freedom? What does it mean? So I was always questioning that in the, in the sort of the, the, those early kind of, um, you know, building blocks of my, um, of my professional career. Those, those courses that I took with people like Ada Ferrer, with Michael Gomez, um, Robin Kelly, you know, those folks, were the ones who were in the department at the time when I was, um, you know, starting out in the early 2000s. And then when my dad passed away and I went to Antigua and spent all that time, you know, I just kind of figured out that, you know, these questions about freedom that I'd always cared about were especially tied as well to my interests in Antigua as a place that my family descended from, that I understood was very much a part of whom, what my identity was, how my, you know, parents sort of even understood the, the, the reasons for why they migrated to the United States, because they often wanted to send, you know, money back, send, um, you know, things back to help the family they left behind, but also because they would spend a lot of time, they and the, you know, people in their generation who had also come up to the States had been settled in the Bronx in particular, they and their friends would talk about things like what was Antigua's future going to be because Antigua was a very recently post-colonial state. Um, They would talk about the relationship between Antigua and Barbuda. They would talk about the relationship of Antiguans to other West Indians in the United States. They had all these things on their mind and I would sit and and witness all of those as a child and I realized there are lots of information that that they knew. They knew so much about the Antigua of their lifetimes and their parents' lifetimes, but what I noticed they didn't know and didn't talk much about was the history of the longer-term struggle that branched back into the period of slavery and emancipation. Why do they not talk about this became one of my big questions. And that time there really kind of cemented for me that the more I want to know about freedom and what it means to define um, you know, a kind of a, a life in freedom for recently emancipated enslaved people. Um, what lays after the stuff of bondage is especially going to be um, poignant for me if I look at it through the the place that has always kind of underlined who I am 
and who and how my family comes to be in the world. So that's where it all began. So once I pretty much made the decision to look into more of Antigua's history, interestingly enough, one of the first places that I ended up finding out a little bit more that led me on the path to what becomes the last chapter of the book is um, an almanac that I found on a visit to Trinidad. I was in Trinidad, um, you know, just hanging out with friends during my, um, during the, the year after my exams. And I went to the University of the West Indies library um, in St. Augustine in Trinidad, and they had all of these rare books. And in particular, they had something called an almanac from the West Indies. And it wasn't necessarily an almanac in the sense that a traditional almanac that tells you, you know, weather patterns and, you know, soil density and that kind of stuff that you would imagine an almanac is. It's more like a calendar of notable events month by month, year by year across the West Indies. So it was a, a more of like a, a, a kind of, um, you know, just a reporting of things that had happened in different places that were, quote, of note. And the thing that w- struck me is that in 1858, there was an entry for Antigua. And oftentimes the West Indies, you find that there was more, whenever a, a text from the 19th century purports to talk about the West Indies, there's usually a focus on the more prominent, the bigger more lucrative islands, the islands where the seat of governments, the islands where sort of things are happening. And that's usually Jamaica. For an earlier period, it's Barbados. And then everywhere else might get passing mention. (laughs) Um, So Antigua rarely comes up. So when it does, I'm always very excited to know more. The entry for the Almanac said in 1858 that there was a a rabble in the street that had caused, um, you know, a disturbance and the jails happened to be overly full as a result. And that led to, um, you know, some upheaval in the country, but that, quote, there were no political designs by this rabble. And so it was not really anything to be worried about in the parlance of whatever that almanac said, it was ultimately that's what it boiled down to. And so immediately that set off my antenna because the other really important lessons that I had learned from all the historians that I had taken classes with, you know, again, these are folks, Barbara Krauthammer was there at the time, Martha Hodes, I already mentioned Ada Ferrer, Mike Gomez, Robin Kelly, who else? Walter Johnson, you know, um, I had the privilege to take classes as well in other departments where Caribbeanists were. So I took a course with the late Connie Sutton, who's an anthropologist um, focused on Barbados. I took a course with the late Kamal Brathwaite. It was incredible. It was a really good time to be at NYU. And almost all of these classes, I always understood that sometimes you are going to have to spend a lot of time trying to work against archives that are working against telling the story of Black people's past in ways that actually affirm who Black people are. And, (laughs) you know, you're going to be fighting against um, many of the the mostly white literate colonial um, writers of the time who are going to want to present Black 
people and black identities in a really kind of negative light. So almost always you're dealing with a hostile archival situation. You're going to fight against what you're reading in a way that is interestingly part of, it's been always a part of my, um, my process as a historian is to therefore question what I am reading, ask what is the story they're, they're really hoping to tell about black people and what exactly are black people actually doing that they're missing in the way that they are representing what they think they are seeing. So no political designs whatsoever set off my antenna, so to speak. And I knew immediately that I was very much interested in the politics of what sent all of these hundreds of people into the streets and into the jails. And then from there, I wanted to go forward in time, ironically, because I wanted to sort of move into some of the parts of the history that my parents knew and my grandparents knew. So the West Indies was rocked by labor riots in the 1930s. And people in Antigua speak very much fondly of the 39ers because that's when Antigua's uprising was, the, the wildcat strikes that took over all these different um, you know, plantation societies around the region. And I kind of thought, well, maybe this might be a precursor to that. Maybe this might bookend a story of something interesting in between. And then the more that I dug into the history of what happened in 1858, the more that I realized I had to go back in time to explain how we get to 1858. And that's when I realized that the story I'm going to tell is not going to start in 1858 and move forward into the 1930s, um, sort of like a Tom Holt-esque <laughs> you know, book, which is what I was, you know, Tom Holt, to this day, he's just one of the most important studies. His study of Jamaica in the post-slavery period, um, looking at Morant Bay, is really, was really transformative for me, too, in terms of what I think I'm trying to do as a historian. Um, the Problem of Freedom was a really um, important text for me to have read in graduate school. So, um, you know, it was a real privilege to finally meet him at a recent AHA um, in D.C. I think that was the AHA in 2018. Um, so uh, I ended up... Um, thinking I was starting out to do something like that, the, the problem of freedom for Antigua. And in a way, yes, and then in a way, no, because I really just wanted to keep it after a while. I was so intrigued about the fact that 1858 really represented some of the problems that had started in 1834 and even before 1834. Some of those problems went back to British um, attempts at ameliorating the condition of slaves in 1823. Um, so I ended up at, you know, spending a lot more time going back in time and became firmly a 19th century historian um, by the time it was all said and done. So it's a long winding route to get to the point that um, my intellectual journey both involved people who were better placed than me pushing me along, um, some wonderful and sometimes not so wonderful um, moments of fate leading me toward my subject matter, and then me taking some of the lessons I was already learning at the earliest points in my graduate school career and saying, okay, this is the best way to really understand 
um, what are the more important parts of this story um, that really are compelling you and moving you to dig in the way that historians have to, to put together something that, you know, more than just you will want to read. <laughs> so that's, um, that's how, that's the long and the short of it. <laughs> well, I, I wanted to pick up a little bit more on, you know, your discussion about the archive or this kind of archive of freedom. Um, you definitely had the pleasure of working with um, these amazing, um, well-known and prominent historians in slavery and emancipation, both um, in the United States and across the Atlantic world. I was curious, do you do you think that the sources that you relied on to tell the story, both of slavery and, and more importantly of freedom, were they different in any way from the types of sources that are often available to scholars who just work on slavery? Um, so I've often explained it in this way where essentially a lot of the work to find out about slavery relies on the record keeping, especially of, um, you know, sort of the the masterclass themselves trying to account for profitability in their private property. Where exactly um, are the the best quality soils? And then, oh yeah, I actually put, you know, a couple hundred people to work here. <laughs> you know, you find out about things sort of by, you know, by what a particular um, owner or their representative chooses to record about enslaved life as it relates to how many hogsheads of sugar they will put out. In freedom, especially in the British Empire, um, which, you know, sort of decrees freedom through a big act of big government, as um, my colleague in the history department at Columbia, Christopher Brown, has put it. Um, you know, he talks about the sort of the, the nature of passing this, you know, Emancipation Act and all of the different acts that supported it leading up to and after it as sort of act of big government. Um, and it's true. When, and once the, once the British government takes responsibility and starts to take out of the hands of private owners the nature of the relationship to um, enslaved and then later free black people between, um, you know, sort of, let's say, property and labor, quote unquote, that the state inserts itself into that relationship. Once that happens, then the state actually has to do a lot of work to figure out how that move that they made to completely reorient the nature of labor in their Caribbean colonies is actually proceeding. Is this a success? Is this a failure? If not, what is it? And so they end up spending a lot more time trying to collect the information on how the experiment is going. And so unlike slavery sources that I found, you're spending a lot more time kind of sifting through private accounts, Sometimes newspapers that mention people one off, runaway slave ads, things like that, where you're sort of digging through um, 
before you get to a mention of enslaved people. So you have a certain type of scarcity there. The sources of emancipation in the British um, archives, especially from the governmental level, are actually abundant. So it's not a scarcity, but you're still struggling in the same way that the, the archives of slavery force you to struggle to actually get to, if you want to get to the issues of interiority, um, identity, um, community formation, the things that people value as part of the, um, you know, the dynamics of what it means to them to be, to, to live a life that feels liberated. All of those things are still going to be in short supply, even within this new abundance of document production that is happening because the empire is trying to manage this transition. So there is a colonial officer that is set up in London and there are governors in the West Indies who are furiously reporting back and forth to that governor about what is happening. And they will put all kinds of people at the ready in each colonial Caribbean society. Um, You know, they will put magistrates. They actually employ a whole army of um, stipendary magistrates and send them down to the Caribbean to look into how emancipation is being managed because they can't trust the local governments to fairly adjudicate labor disputes, which are constantly happening now because newly freed people are saying, wow, this is supposed to be a time where I am earning wages and yet I'm still so poor. And there are so many disputes around little things I thought I was now free to do, like setting my own hours and determining when and where I can take a break during the day because I am no longer enslaved and therefore mandated to do it. But those are the kinds of things that still don't tell you as much about community formation as you would like. (laughs) But, you know, you get a lot more of it is the point. So it's a really interesting situation where for me in the archives, I spent almost an entire academic year researching at the British National Archives. And I spent some time while I was in um, England also visiting um, other smaller archives, the um, libraries at the School of Oriental and African Studies, um, the Bodleian Library at Oxford. Um, you know, while I was at these different places, I found a lot of um, of of material that really cemented for me that well, freedom was definitely. Uh, supposed to be an adjustment to how labor proceeded. Only in the minds of the British, that adjustment was not supposed to undo servitude. (laughs) So that's the big, um, you know, kind of contradiction that I think my book outlines is the fact that people wanted to feel as though something had changed in their everyday existence. And the the British authorities and, you know, the colonial governors, the individual planters and their representatives wanted to make sure that that, you know, sort of that, that, that sense that an order was supposed to be preserved was never supposed to be troubled. That was the problem. For them, they wanted the order preserved. They wanted to keep things tidy. So freedom, yes, you are free 
to have, you know, control over your person. But even still, you're not free to be able to determine how much the wages that you and your body are earning are actually worth. <laughs> um, you know, that you're not free to travel about the island and about the region as you think you should. You are not free to um, occupy public space and, you know, kind of present yourself in, in, in public in the ways that you think you should. You should still preserve the order that had long been set up in slavery of deference to white people and to, um, you know, sort of Protestant moral code and, you know, all of these different ways in which obedience was expected and oftentimes enforced upon um, enslaved people as they, even as they were becoming supposedly free. You bring together, as you did right now in, in your response about the, the, the challenges for the freed people to actually live out a life of what that meant to be free, and you do so in the case of Antigua and also Barbuda. And so what I was thinking you might do is expand a little bit as to kind of, um, you know, how were the processes of slavery on these islands um, similar or different? from um, larger islands that we think of, maybe Jamaica or Barbados, for example, or even Cuba? Um, and then how did the process of um, kind of legal emancipation occur? Um, so I guess I wouldn't say that it's um, different, except that it is much smaller. <laughs> you know, that these are really smaller islands and the um, the degree to which, you know, any of these um, kind of larger slash more lucrative territories um, proceeded ultimately is that, um, you know, for, I, for Antigua and Barbuda, well, first of all, Barbuda is a rather different place from Antigua. Um, and Barbuda is not even a, a a, a territory that could support plantation and agriculture in for profit in the same style. And so Barbuda's trajectory was one that immediately diverged from that of any of the sugar producing islands um, in two ways. One, they didn't produce sugar, but two, Barbuda became functioning as a kind of private, um, you know, like, a, 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 just a private property, a, a kind of personal fiefdom of the Codrington family. So the Codringtons were one of the large um, plantation owners in Antigua, and they, you know, pushed to try and create um, some sort of um, commercial agricultural enterprise there, and they realized quickly that that would not happen. So the thing that they actually ended up doing was creating Barbuda as a supply colony for their Antiguan plantations. So the enslaved people who lived there were actually um, livestocking and growing um, crops for subsistence and um, doing maritime trades 
fishing, you know, diving um, for seafood and, you know, helping with boat building, things like that. Um, so Barbuda's whole trajectory was different. And you'll see it also in the differences between the what the experience was of being enslaved there. So physically, it's always said that Barbudans were healthier because they never really had a negative birth rate. And that was true of most of the islands that didn't produce sugar in the British West Indies. Antigua, as a rule, was similar, more similar than different if we're using Barbuda as a benchmark to other sugar islands, um, essentially places like Jamaica and Barbados or even the Windward Islands. Um, you know, essentially the work of tilling the soil, hoeing, you know, planting crops, um, you know, harvesting cane, processing it at mills, that happened on every island to some bar- large or small scale. Um, you know, and so Antigua fits into that same pattern. It's just that it's, you know, a very small place. There are probably no more than about 150 operative plantations at its peak of sugar production. Um and many of the, the, there were multiple, um, you know, sorts of, uh, multiple plantations owned by either groups, uh, one, one singular person or singular family or singular kind of conglomerate of um, investors. So, because the number of people, and this is true throughout the West Indies too, the number of people who are resident um, in the planter class is less and less over the course of the 18th century and definitely into the 19th century. So the setup is one where there aren't as many resident whites, but the power that any resident white is able to, you know, any resident white person is able to, to, to wield is fairly considerable, especially if they consider, if they are actually part of um, you know, the planter class or, or, or planter class adjacent, adjacent, shall we say. So that's, um, you know, that's where I think, um, you know, sameness and difference becomes a little bit harder to sort of kind of base the narrative on because it's in some ways, even though I'm, I am talking about the importance of looking at small places. I'm not saying that the small places are so radically different. It's just one of the things that is different is that there's less land. There's actually means that there's less options. So it's basically rendering in a kind of more on a micro scale, some of the problems of a place like Jamaica, Jamaica after freedom, there's lots of people trying to squat on lots of unoccupied land. And that becomes a problem you see being traced in many of the the post-slavery studies of Jamaica, um, you know, Tom Holt included, but people like Kathleen Monteith and, you know, Swithin Wilmot and a lot of Marine Shepherd, folks who are writing about post-slavery Jamaica talk about this kind of stuff in their work, right? But, um, you know, for Antigua, there's just not even enough land. Where are you going to go? <laughs> it's no, you know, it's, it's, it becomes a real problem. Like, 
the space issue. There's so much wrangling around where will people go if they don't remain on the estates? Can they go anywhere else? When they get to go somewhere else, is it someplace that they can actually create a life for themselves independent of the estates? And that answer is overwhelmingly a no, actually. Much of what I talk about in the book, then, is the fact that so much of freedom looks so much like slavery. Many of the people who are freed are freed right into working for wages for the person that owned them five minutes before. So my question is, when you don't have a lot of land and you don't earn a lot of money and there isn't that much in the way of educational opportunity so that people can actually do the kind of work that often might be happening in, say, even the post-slavery United States, where there is um, a considerable class of educated Black people because there are large numbers of people who were free before the end of slavery. You know, and that obviously, they, they have an interesting relationship that many historians have chronicled, right, between like sort of the former free people of color and the people who become freed after the Civil War. There's a lot of of very important work that has been produced out of the U.S. context on that. Same is true in the Caribbean. Um, On a smaller scale, there are still large numbers of people who are free before the end of slavery. In Antigua, that number is really small, and they cannot do too much either. (laughs) So who are the people who are going to advocate for these newly freed people who have been liberated into not much at all? Sometimes it's not really even about advocacy. It's about what are the little things that people can do every day to protect themselves because there is nobody else to protect them. And so all of this, the entire edifice governmentally and socially that exists in this post-slavery small island that is Antigua is not necessarily set up to create more feelings of liberty and the kind of, and anything like equity. Nothing like that is what the goal is. The goal is to reestablish order. So how do you do that? And that's through things like, you know, vagrancy laws and contracts that require people to report to work and if you don't show up, you don't get paid. And if you don't show up within over seven days, you, you're fired. <laughs> this is things like that that were written into the Contract Act um, of 1834 passed in Antigua. The, you know, Antigua is the one sugar-producing island that decided not to go with the British um, plan of apprenticeship because they'd hoped they would get money early. They big government that I talked about, the act of big government that came with, you know, British emancipation, one of those acts was to pass um, a 20 million pound compensation um, program. Um, And that allowed for all of the um, former owners of the empire to make claims for their lost property. Right? And I teach about that Compensation Act in a specific way in my classes where I uh, alert students to the fact that there's freedom is always mitigated if enslaved people are leaving the state of bondage in the same way that they entered it, essentially with a price on their head. Right? So 
the fact that this act of big government was really about restoring the rights of private property, ultimately, is something that I'm hoping people who read my book will understand and understand that, hey, not only does this, um, you know, kind of create certain types of financial reverberations throughout the empire. And there are lots of people who've written really wonderful work on that kind of stuff. It also has everyday impact because immediately what happens in Antigua is there the planters who are at this point, just on the eve of 1834, sort of looking at what will their lives be like in freedom, they are worried because they feel like, well, Antigua's not producing as much sugar anyway. We're not going to make as much money. And then we're going to have to pay these people. It's just going to be too much. And so they are already anxious and on edge at, at the eve of 1834 when this British emancipation is supposed to happen. And they have heard about this program that the British Parliament has approved for this 20 million pound compensation. And they say, well, why don't we skip the other part of this, this apprenticeship program that the British came up with as a part of the, the transition to freedom that they are setting up governmentally? They say, well, you know, we could apprentice our enslaved people the way all the other islands are going to do it. But instead of doing that, if we free them immediately, maybe we can get this money immediately and get some more money going into this economy so that this transition to freedom won't really upend us financially. And the, the colonial office um, secretary says, you are free to do whatever you want, but you have to wait for your money like everyone else in the empire until we do this thing properly. And it's funny because historians who know West Indian history well have come up to me and said, I've always heard it. And these are people who were educated in the Caribbean. And they've said to me, I've always heard the the Antiguan slave owners were, you know, humanitarian. They were magnanimous. That is why they allowed for the apprenticeship to be skipped. And so that's another thing I try to push people to understand in the early chapters of my book that, no, this was not an act of, you know, giving. This was an act of taking. They were hoping to get their money early. And when they got told that they wouldn't, they wanted to renege. And then it became clear that because they had made it known that they were going to go straight to freedom, that they wanted to maintain order. And so the local House of Assembly, which was full of planters, of course, because representative government was nothing if not just about a whole bunch of white men and a few colored men exercising the franchise and white men getting elected into office. And most of those white men were tied to the sugar industry. So they all looked at each other and said, we might have a riot on our hands if we announce that we are going to apprentice the, these, these enslaved people after all of this time saying we're not going to do that. So they went straight to freedom. And then they immediately went about the work of creating a freedom that had all of this legal um, Pro, these legal prohibitions attached to it to make sure that people didn't get too free. Um, so there were licensing laws attached to being a huckster or being a fisherman or any other kind of independent enterprise. You had to prove that you were working. And if you weren't able to prove it, 
then you were going to get jailed for vagrancy and jail jailing for vagrancy came with hard labor. There were these contract acts, as I mentioned before, that tied people to the estates that they were working on. And that also was tied to housing. So if you lived on an estate, then you had to work on that estate. And if you couldn't, if you didn't show up for work, then you lost your house too. You see what I mean? So there are all these different ways that I've talked about like the big ways in which people were just not free. I was really struck by your your chapter of talking about kind of community relations, particularly the kind of moral um, ordering that the the white um, population in Tiga um, attempted to maintain control over. And you had this chapter where you're talking about um, the role of Moravian uh, missionaries. And I was hoping you might talk about the ways in which freed people wrestled constantly to have control over um, their um, romantic and um, conjugal um, activities, family structures, and the ways in which kind of the white establishment fought to um, kind of circumvent their own autonomous decision-making. Yeah. So um, one of the other sets of whites that I concentrate on in the book, and it's funny because, you know, white people are bit players in this book, and deliberately so. (laughs) Just going to say as an aside, um, I spent a lot of time in graduate school reading a lot of books that promised to make books you know, to they promised in the introduction. The introduction is a place where you promise a lot. <laughs> and I would always get upset at introductions that promised to be giving me a book about Black people's lives. And then we spent a whole lot of time reading about white people in the chapters. <laughs> it sounds so simplistic. And yet it is really hard when you are researching a book about Black people where all of your sources are authored by white people to make sure that you are always putting black people as the subject of every sentence. <laughs> it's, I'm, and I had this back and forth with, um, with the, with someone who I was working with, um, an editor who helped me, um, make this text readable. Um, and shout out to Gray Osterud. She is the only reason why this book is, a good read. <laughs> um, but she, I remember in the beginning, she said, look, what are you doing? These sentence structures are so weird. And I realized I was doing so much work because I was trying to put black people's stories first. And I, and I had to figure out how to do it, even though I was working with these sources that were just not letting me do that. And I realized I just had to own that, that, that the sources aren't exactly letting me do it, so I have to write differently. I can't write word for word what is happening in these sources. I really have to be interpreting these sources in a certain way, and I have to reflect that in the way that I'm writing. That literally is about always having a source, but not taking it for granted that what's in the source is the story, is the full story of, of what I'm trying to tell. So back to this issue, um, because this issue is very much at work in looking at who are the white people who are writing the stories of of enslaved people's transition to freedom in Antigua. And one of the populations that is most actively writing besides colonial authorities 
and planters are missionaries. Missionaries are basically another quasi-state-like presence in the lives of newly freed people in the British West Indies because they're interested in saving souls and they realize emancipation presented a really ripe opportunity for various um, Protestant evangelical sects to come down to the West Indies from the continent of Europe and do the work of saving souls for, for the Lord, um, you know, and the planters and colonial officials welcomed them because they thought, well, this is going to be the way that we get obedience to happen. This is going to be another mode in which we are able to sort of mold these people, you know, into, um, you know, willing laborers, right? The Protestant work ethic thing is very much at work in how missionaries gain access to um, proselytizing enslaved people in the West Indies in the middle 18th century. This is kind of when it begins. This is when you start seeing the first, um, you know, Baptist, Methodist, Moravian, and other, you know, other missionaries who come down, Presbyterians, etc. Um, later, the British establishment church, the Anglican church, will start sending some, some priests as well. Um, but they sort of become a part of the story especially after amelioration when they realize, oh, it's all these dissenter sects that are bringing in all these wild and crazy ideas about equality and anti-slavery. And so we need to get the Anglicans in here to get some order, <laughs> right? And so then by the time you get to the end of slavery, it's sort of like all of the missions are very much you know, interested in getting newly freed people to perform a kind of comportment of freedom that is in line with church etiquette. And the church is an interesting kind of, like I said, is a quasi-state-like presence. And the reason why I say quasi is because at times they are, they are a form of authority. And then at other times, the church is a site for social services and actual, you know, kinds of opportunities that the state and planters are not giving. So the church is where many people would go to for free meals, for the bits of schooling that they could procure for themselves and their children. Um, newly free people would go to the church to be able to start a paper trail of their lives. Like people who have never been anything except, you know, property inside someone's ledger. When you become free and you want to do something in public, the church is where it kind of starts. So you baptize your children, you know, you get married, you do things that, you know, you, you become a member of a free village and you lease a piece of property. Oftentimes the, the churches in Antigua brokered even the very first free villages that existed off estates. So the church even though they're trying to create certain kinds of authority and certain types of, um, you know, regulations around um, freed people's, you know, ways of living, they're also a site for freed people to actually find, um, you know, uh, access to public personhood, literally. So 
free people have an interesting, if not strained relationship with the churches. And I talk about that at length in a couple of the chapters. So the missionary records I'm, I'm looking at are very much the records that allow me to talk about community formation, about spiritual practices, about, you know, anything that doesn't have much to do with just cutting cane and processing cane, anything outside of the labor market. I often had to go to the missionary records to take a really closer look at who these people were in their off time. Um, because the missionaries were the ones who were really very much interested in chronicling it. So to that end, I have a chapter in the book that talks about the ways that some of this comes together in quite, again, troubling fashion. Everything about this book, (laughs) the word troubling was the only word I could come up with for the title because everything was wrong. (laughs) Everything was wrong with how freedom was looking to me. Um, (laughs) And so this is one of those things, you know, so the mission, the missionaries that spent a lot of time proselytizing um, freed people, especially in the rural parts of Antigua, outside of the one, you know, kind of capital, small town, um, St. John's, the people outside of town were especially Moravians. The Moravians spent a lot of time building churches in the countryside. And the Moravians, for those that don't know, they're a very small um, uh, Christian sect from um, the east of Germany. Um, Their headquarters are in Hernhut. And I know that Moravians are not actually in large number in Germany themselves. Many German Christian Germans are not a part of the Moravian church at all. Moravians were especially interested in going. If you look in their guidebooks um, for missionaries, they were talking about specifically going to the quote heathen parts of the world. Um, and so they had specific settlements with very, you know, kind of, um, you know, varying amounts of success at different parts of the United States, South, the West Indies and, you know, um, and they kind of understood themselves again as, you know, reaching out to these, you know, heathen souls to try and turn them into, you know, um, crusaders for the Lord. And the Moravians were accepted by the, um, the colonial authorities in Antigua because they were seen as pushing a more hierarchical form of obedience. They weren't anti-slavery folks, <laughs> you know, they weren't interested in lay leadership. Um, like the Methodists, the Methodists were seen as the real troublemakers. Um, you know, <laughs> so in Antigua, the, the Methodists were kind of the, the, the church of the few mixed race um, and literate folks from the community of African descended people. So the, the planter establishment was very much suspicious of the Methodist church. The Moravians were seen as, okay, these people just want to make sure that people can read the Bible and praise the Lord and follow the rules. And that's all we want. Part of the rules to get to the real answer to your question was about Christian marriage and forming a nuclear family. That is one thing that the state and the churches came together around, especially because it created both 
it was sort of a win-win, let's say. It created both the, the sort of material needs that come with the formation of a household that would keep people in the fields, and it created a set of social and spiritual obligations that made people, you know, have to sort of put themselves into, um, you know, the kinds of family units that essentially replicated church hierarchy in the household. So ultimately a nuclear style family with a man at the head and a woman at his side and the children all sort of working toward a, you know, a kind of household economy. That is the sort of vision that the churches had, why they were especially interested in proselytizing around getting people to marry each other and have children in wedlock. And they would require that those, they would require those things for your ability as a free, an average freed person to access their services. So if you want to be a part of their mutual benefit society and get, and pay dues and be able to get dues when, you know, times were hard in your family or to, you know, apply to get a piece, a plot in a free village, all those things could only happen if you were, um, you know, in a legitimate family. So needless to say, enslavement was not really like that socially. As you know, from all of the studies of slavery throughout the Atlantic world, enslaved people came together in everything but nuclear units, right? Because this was life on you know, plantations where people's life expectancy was short and people could be moved at whim, sold, you know, things like that. That meant that people came together in lots of different ways. So there were, you know, multiple partnerships. People weren't getting married. People were having children with one another. And it might be the family structure might be that, you know, a mother and a grandmother might be taking care of children together. Um, and, you know, maybe a man, the man of the household, quote unquote, never lived with them. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So people's ways of coming together and forming family and forming community were very much not like the ways that the church and the state envisioned. That chapter is that I'm talking, that you've asked me about, was one of the hardest ones to write because I found that within the work that the Moravian church was doing to try and quote unquote, improve the lives of free people in Antigua, they were absolutely pushing people into relationships that were not very um, beneficial, especially for black women. That chapter is the chapter where I, am able to argue most, um, you know, compellingly for the fact that freedom has gendered components and the ways that freedom is gendered shows that Black women are especially not liberated by the practice of freedom in the colonial British Caribbean. That much of what you see in the records of these missionaries is about trying to punish people for forming these relationships that are seen as illicit, for having children out of wedlock, for cohabiting without being married, for 
um, you know, having multiple partners at the same time. Um, those kinds of practices, when they get discovered by the church, you can get found out and brought up for punishment. You can be dismissed from the church from a certain, for a certain amount of time or fully and permanently. And as a result of that, many women found themselves, especially on the receiving end of some um, rather violent behavior that I also had to figure out how not to pathologize. Um, Because ultimately, one of the things that I discovered in writing that chapter, looking at the Moravian records and these sorts of quote-unquote hearings where people would be brought forward as being in violation of these um, various norms around marriage and family formation. The, the church was interested in trying to figure out how can we get these people to follow the rules? And they were never really commenting. I would look at the missionary records. There was never a comment except to just blankly report that maybe the second hearing they had, the woman in this relationship showed up with, you know, badly bruised, or looking like, quote unquote, lame because she had been injured um, as a result of the fight that ensued from the first hearing. So literally women trying to follow the rules of the church and bringing their husband to answer to the church because she's trying to keep up her end of the bargain of this newfound, you know, obligation of being in wedlock and in this nuclear marriage, and her husband is not, let's say. He still has another partner. The violence that ensues is a violence that comes down upon women, and the, the record is just there of all these women experiencing this over and over again, and I'm saying, well, um, you know, did the church feel obligated to even address that? And ultimately, no is the answer. They felt obligated to address the violation of their rules. So this is what I mean when I say like freedom is, going, is, is about small everyday practices because the bigger structures are not there to support people living, a, you know, like a fully liberated life. So for the, for the people I'm looking at, you know, In this chapter, I'm talking about the fact that multiple partnerships may have actually been a source of freedom for for newly freed women. That having everything tied to one partner might not have been anything but, you know, a certain type of um, confinement and exposure to violence. That it might have been much more in their interests in certain respects to carry on certain continuities from slavery socially, like the sort of non-nuclear family structure. Um, You know, so that's, that's definitely a part of, you know, of this work of trying to lay out what exactly are small quotidian everyday forms of freedom that sort of exist in contention with with um, the kind of the structures of authority, the building blocks of society like the church, the state, 
the plantation um, economy. You know? Natasha, I mean, it's, I, I could talk to you all day about um, your work. Um, and you you handle a lot of difficult um, aspects of the freed people's experience with um, just a, a touch of sensitivity in the writing um, really was compelling. There's a lot of violence um, that you you actually address um, both in terms of struggling to have economic um, autonomy, but also in in the domestic sphere. I know I, I have had you on for for quite some time now, and I do want to um, give you an opportunity for you to discuss kind of wh- what are you working on now? What what projects are are in the works, small and large? Okay, so um, one small project, interestingly enough, so this relationship between Antigua and Barbuda that I talked about at the beginning of our chat um, sort of comes to fruition at the end of the book um, in very spectacular and again, violent ways. Um, One of my ongoing arguments is that violence was sort of the nature of how power was wielded in slavery. And so violence in many ways became newly freed people's way of establishing themselves as free beings. And oftentimes that violence would be wielded against people who looked just like them. Um, it might be the women and men in their homes. It might be the others in their midst who are in their communities who they can spot just enough difference to justify said acts of violence. So this, the last chapter of my book is about a four-day riot that happens in the town because there are a bunch of people who have left Barbuda in the post-slavery period between the 1830s and the 1850s, and they end up in the town competing for jobs with newly freed Antiguans. And what ends up happening is there's this, you know, there's this moment where Antiguan people are fighting Barbudans, breaking down their houses, punishing them, and literally beating them in the street. Women are beating women, men are beating men. And it's kind of this crazy, spectacular act of prolonged violence that starts with people fighting each other. And then, you know, the working people of Antigua start realizing their, and, and that, they, that their grievances aren't just, quote unquote, against Barbudans, um, and that really they start moving on to, you know, stoning policemen stoning planters and trying to break into the arsenal and the police station in town. And I don't know what would have happened had they gotten there. It might have been an even more violent and spectacular failure. But at that point, this is the this is the the event that I found first. Like I said, this thing in this almanac <laughs> that made me, you know, sort of get pause, like, wait a minute, what do you mean there's no political designs? There was all this politics in what sends people into the street. I was literally just today reading um, an interview with Marcus Redeker about the mob, the multitude um, in, rad- in radical philosophy from, I believe it was this month. Um, and it, you know, listening, well, reading his words about the, you know, about the multitude, that's the, the sort of the, the many-headed hydra, right? The, the, the motley crew, all these words for when groups of people come together in a certain, and there's a certain type of politics to it. 
um, you know, there's a leaderlessness or, you know, again, in the words of, of a Julia Scott, there's a masterlessness that's happening in this group of people. They are sort of, that's the, the people who I have been looking at this whole time. And I realized that the violence that they wield in the street is because they've had no other way. They've tried every other way. And, and every other time they have tried to be, to enact freedom in their everyday lives, they have been studiously blocked. So they come to the street and they do this, this rioting <laughs> and it does not bring them anything except jail time. And, and yet again, I believe that we can learn something from what becomes these moments of unfortunate violence and failure. Um, and funny enough, the thing I just wrote, I just wrote a piece in Small Acts about Antigua and Barbuda now. Um, because Barbuda, um, many people in the world who had never heard of Barbuda heard about it as of 2017 when the hurricanes passed through the region. And Hurricane Irma Maria devastated several different islands, um, the British Virgin Islands, the U.S. Virgin Islands, Puerto Rico, Dominica, St. Martin, Anguilla, and also Barbuda. And Barbuda was decimated by Hurricane Irma. And rebuilding Barbuda has become a really contested issue. And the relationship between Antigua and Barbuda that has had all these long tensions. I'm actually writing a piece for um, the Caribbean journal Small Acts. It's supposed to come out in another month or two um, about the rebuilding process and how it's tied to some of this longer history that goes back to Codrington family mishandling of Barbuda, um, the British colonial government's abandonment of Barbuda after the Codringtons leave. And then when Antigua becomes a post-colonial quote-unquote independent state, how it also tries to handle Barbuda in ways that are untoward and, that, and how Barbudans have resisted at every turn and how the hurricane's passage has made its, you know, its ability to resist severely um, constrained. So if anyone is interested, check me out in Small Acts and another, um, like I said, it should be either the, Ju I think it's coming out in the June issue. Um, and then I'm also working on another book. Um, so the next thing I'm working on, uh, the next monograph I'm working on is um, a look at I'm looking at British emancipation from a different perspective. Ultimately, so the book is called Fugitive Cosmopolitans, and it's also going to be coming out with Duke, who knows when, because there's never really time between teaching and motherhood and, you know, everything else. But my hope is that it will be out sometime, you know, <laughs> sometime this decade. Um, so that book is all about people who are in, enslaved, who are born enslaved in British territories in the Caribbean, and then somehow illegally moved to other territories in other empires. So um, people who are smuggled to the Danish West Indies, to Puerto Rico and Cuba, um, Suriname, um, you know, so I have a number of different cases I'm looking at, where essentially those people find out that, they're, that they should have been freed because it's sometime after 1834. 
and how they learn about British emancipation and the ways that they learn that they can advocate for themselves to become free as British subjects is kind of the thing that I'm tracing. It's part of the way I'm trying to understand what it means to be a cosmopolitan slave. And there are folks who are writing about this, like what, you know, like how does cosmopolitanism sort of overlap or kind of, you know, kind of conflict with the status of slavery. Um, So here I'm thinking of someone like Roshana Johnson, who talks about confined cosmopolitanism in New Orleans, Um, you know, fellow NYU folk. Um, You know, I'm thinking of like some of the people who have talked about, you know, sort of mobility in the Black Atlantic, right? From like, you know, a Gilroy going up to like folk like Jim Sidbury, you know, um, there's all this stuff around like mobility and movement as sort of creating a certain type of knowledge, a certain type of savvy. And then there's also this question of, but they're enslaved people. What does that mean? Where, where, when and where are they, you know, sort of, for me at least, the, the, the question for me is always, well, something about their movements are mitigated. <laughs> you know, that it's, it's, it's not just, you know, a sort of like straightforward, the minute people find out they can use British protection, they get up, they go to British territory and they're fine. It's a process of incredible, you know, sort of, they have to be, they actually have to, you know, literally stealthily do these types of advocates, this type of advocacy for themselves. So that's where the fugitivity stuff comes in. And, and in that in that case, I'm looking at a lot of folks who, you know, there's lots of people who are talking about fugitivity. Um, most recently, Jessica Krug's book, um, but lots of folks who have asked these questions about what it means to be, you know, sort of in motion and somehow away from the eyes of the state. And yet these people are somehow, and away from the eyes of the, of the people who ostensibly call themselves as owners of their bodies, right? And yet the people I'm looking at are sort of trying to do things with, with the state's help, right? Like they're using the British state to fight against a Dutch or a Spanish or a Danish state um, that is saying, actually, no, you are a slave, a legal slave in this place of this person. You are legally the property of someone else and no amount of British you know, interference is going to change that. So questioning how these people come to understand themselves as British subjects, how they try to, you know, literally sneak around the authority that they are currently contending with to be able to advocate and appeal to the authority of the British to protect them and how some of them actually end up home, quote unquote, back where they started is the stuff that I'm looking at for the next book. So we'll see. Cross your fingers for me that it may be coming out sometime soon. <laughs> we'll definitely look forward to your small acts uh, article in, in this early summer. Natasha, thank you for this interview. It's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed it too. Um, you know, thank you for helping to remind me about why I do what I do. <laughs> so this is fun. Listeners can access um, a link to Dr. Lightfoot's book, Troubling Freedom, Antigua in the Aftermath of British Emancipation, um, which was published by Duke University Press on New Books Network and Caribbean Studies um, webpage. See you next time.